So, in the beginning, you hinted at like the most plausible form of Christianity, Emerson. So, in your view, what is the most plausible form of Christianity? So this started out as kind of a game, like with uh, relay theology, kind of asking, we have this, like, if, if you're an atheist, they'll say, so what do you think is the most plausible form of theism? You know, they sort of like started it off in me where I was trying to think about, okay, I, I don't really buy into to any form of Christianity, but given the problems that bother me the most. So at first I went with Calvinism <laughs> because I was like, well, they buy into predestination, which I think is kind of unavoidable. At least they just bite the bullet. You know, at least they just admit it. So that didn't last very long because I think that it's, you know, you can't really believe in a good God who's like predestining people to hell. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Like he's just, he's merciful, he's good, he's loving. And then he's just kind of like stamping you, you know, it's not even your fault. Like he's just, stamping, he's like, yeah, you're going to be tortured forever and you're going to have eternal bliss. Like that's insane. You know, <laughs> that's a, that's an, it's a wild worldview. But I thought like, at least they just embrace the predestination because it seems kind of unavoidable to me because there's this unfair distribution of evidence and there's this unfair, unequal distribution of ability to assess the evidence. And there's this unequal distribution of interest in even looking into this at all. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, depending on the time and place that you're born in, you might not uh, believe kind of rationally. And it seems like pretty much every form of Christianity, most of them at least, um, your beliefs play some kind of role in what happens to you, like, eternally. <laughs> um, so I think that's uh, a pretty bizarre criterion to um, sort of dole out, like, eternal punishment or eternal bliss. So uh, this, these kind of soteriological issues weigh pretty heavily on me. And it turns out they weigh pretty heavily on some Christians, too. They're called universalists. So, like, there are these universalist Christians, like David Bentley Hart or Keith DeRose, who say things that sound like they could have come out of my mouth, honestly. Like, I'm I'm reading one of David Bentley Hart's books right now, um, That All Shall Be Saved, and he's talking about the Christian story of the world, if it's the case that people are kind of sent to this everlasting realm of torment, or even just annihilated, you know, eternally separated from God in that way, and just trying to make it all cohere. And he agrees with me where he's like, you can't make this cohere. It It literally is incoherent. It's morally and rationally incoherent. And I'm just like, yeah. And then he's just like, but that doesn't mean Christianity is rationally incoherent because there's this soteriological view that does make all these things cohere. You know, God's justice, his goodness, his love, and our eternal fate. Like, you can at least make it coherent. So Mm -hmm. I think that that requires universalism. So it's not that you'd reject belief in hell. There's still a hell, but it plays a kind of purgatorial role. You know, like you go there and it's kind of this place of moral purification before you, you know, enter into the presence of God or something like that. And it's not like you're, you know, physically tortured until you submit or something. It's like this, Mm -hmm. uh, like, yeah, it plays this kind of purgatorial role. So I think your soteriological view has the potential to implode the internal coherence of your worldview. So I think that conditional immortality and eternal conscious torment, they just kind of implode the moral and rational coherence of Christianity. Like, the story makes no sense to me. It's, it's literally impossible for me to believe it. And it's been really strange, honestly, to hear Christians say the same exact thing that I just said. Like, mm-hmm. it's been kind of surreal in some ways. Yeah, I think that universalist Christianity that has hell as kind of a purgatorial role where all are eventually saved in the end, I think that that can help avoid problems of soteriological confusion where people don't agree about how to get salvation and problems where, you know, we've got this geographic 
powerful predictor for which religious beliefs you tend to adopt. You know, like people who are born in the Middle East are a lot less likely to become Christians. People who are born in the United States are a lot less likely to become Muslims. The only point there is that there's this like kind of unfair distribution of evidence and this like kind of unfair distribution of ability to assess the evidence. So universalists kind of just remove this piece where it's like, yeah, whichever beliefs you come to hold, like those play a pretty significant role in determining whether you have eternal bliss or um, something much, much worse. Mm -hmm. So I think that that actually rescues the at least coherence of the story of like a an unsurpassably great being of perfect love who wills that all shall be saved. Um, mm. Like I think that if you adopt universalism, then that at least, at least makes it coherent. The other important piece to this, I think is um, something that C.S. Lewis and Eleanor Stump convinced me of, which is that in order to have a relationship with God, you don't actually have to have an explicit belief in God. So mm. this is, it sounds kind of weird, but it's, yeah, it kind of, seems to follow straightforwardly from like a pretty plain reading of scripture. And like mm-hmm. I said, you can find it in like the fiction of C.S. Lewis and stuff, and it's defended explicitly by Eleanor Stump. It's just the idea that you can be in a relationship with God and not actually know it. This would help a lot with the problem of like religious discord and religious diversity, including atheists. It's not to say that all paths lead to God. That's not the point. That's, you know, Christianity is still an exclusivist religion. It's just that you can have a relationship with God, with the true God, without ever uttering the noise, Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. like So the the point is just that, like, you know, in First John 4, God is, like, identified with love itself, like, you know, in every which way. It could not be, it really didn't want, like, there, there's really no room for uh, misinterpreting it there. Like, it's, it just says God is love, and it says it every which way. And, you know, traditionally, God is considered to be identical with the good itself. So Eleanor Stump's point and C.S. Lewis's point is just that, look, you can be pursuing the good and um, serving the highest virtues of love, like without really knowing anything about Christianity, you know? So, and like, you can be doing things in the name of Christianity and not pursuing the good. So this is where, you know, Matthew 25 actually makes a lot of sense. You know, the part with the sheep and the goats, where it seems like there are all these people who think that they're Christians, you know, who think that they're followers of Christ. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. And it seems like the converse is also true. Like there are people who think they are Christians who are not. And it seems like there are people who don't think they are Christians who are, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Um, So like people who are following God, who, uh, you know, don't have explicit knowledge that that's what they're doing. So Eleanor Stump defends this, C.S. Lewis defends this, where at the end of um, something with Aslan or whatever, and then like the Satan character, I think, is Tash, or maybe he's another The guy. last battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like, he, uh, so there's this guy who's like a Tash worshiper, and he's like, uh, you know, so it's the end of history, you know, Aslan has like won the battle and everything, and this guy is like, I'm completely screwed because I've been a Tash worshiper my whole life. And um, Aslan kind of like welcomes him, and he's like, you know, every time that you serve the good or, you know, the highest ideals of love, like, you were doing that in my name, whether you knew it or not. And, um, you know, it wasn't for Tash. Like, even though you thought you were doing it in Tash's name, you were actually doing it in my name. And every time someone does something evil, even if they do it in my name, they're not doing it in my name, they're doing it in Tash's name, because evil belongs to Tash, and, like, goodness belongs to me. And then the guy's like, oh, so does that mean that you have many names, and there are, like, many paths to you? And Aslan is like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Like, you know, so... This isn't to uh, undermine exclusivism or to say that, like, you know, all paths lead to the same place. Like, it's not like that, you know. It's just saying that 
you know, you can be pursuing the good, so you can be in relationship with God and not know it. You know, to me, that seems like the most straightforward reading of Matthew 25. Like, there are people who think they're following God who aren't, and there are people who don't realize they're following God who are. So, mm-hmm. I think that goes a long way towards helping with divine hiddenness and um, religious confusion and religious disagreement. Yeah, I think that universalism just really helps the whole story kind of cohere. Um, mm-hmm. If we're talking about an unsurpassably great being of perfect love who wills that all shall be saved and then gives people this unequal access to evidence and ability to assess the evidence and, you know, they're put in this time and place and then through no fault of their own, they end up not having the right beliefs and then they're tortured for all of time. That's impossible for me to believe. It seems like morally and rationally incoherent. So, yeah, I think that... I think there's a version of Christianity that makes sense. I, I don't think there's a name for it. And by the way, if I were to convert to this version of Christianity that kind of has those like bare features that I just named, I'm pretty sure most Christians would say that I'm not a Christian and not really want to claim me anyway. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what would happen even if I were to convert to this kind of universalist form of Christianity that, you know, like I said, it's still exclusivist, but it can give people the impression that it's not exclusivist, even though I think mm-hmm. it's plainly scriptural. But yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure I would, they would, a lot of people would hit the uh, not a real Christian button pretty quickly mm-hmm. if I were to uh, convert to this form of Christianity. But I think that that's kind of the most plausible form. Mm-hmm. I think that's something Christians do too much, just press the not a real Christian button when they, they've come into views that they're uncomfortable with. And obviously, like, for me, like, I'm a Christian, like, there is, like, an orthodoxy that, like, must be followed, but, like, you got to be very careful and, like, like, like just saying they're, they're not a Christian. Um, so, yeah, um, we're now we're in Emerson, and, like, everyone would be like, why aren't you a theist, dude? Like, come on, just jump on the train and become that Christian, or I guess according to some, that fake Christian. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. what, what's keeping you, what's holding you back um, from just, like, embracing theism, I guess, generally? Well, I mean, the thing that's holding me back from embracing the kind of theism that's, like, more widely subscribed, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's sort of the reasons that I just outlined. Like, I think the story is kind of morally and rationally incoherent um, once you factor in eternal conscious torment <laughs> or eternal separation. Um, that actually has a lot to do with why I'm incapable of believing the story. And the thing is, that view is way more popular than stuff that David Bentley Hart defends. Um, but if you're talking about why am I not a theist, you know, with the kind of plausible version of Christianity that I just sketched out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, forget about the the vast majority of Christians, just forget about them. What about this version of Christianity that kind of makes sense to you? Um, the thing, pretty much the only thing that keeps me away from that form of Christianity that I sketched out is the problem of evil. So I have lots of objections to theism depending on your soteriological views. <laughs> If you happen to accept those kind of fringe views that I just laid out, I don't know what the Eleanor Stump C.S. Lewis view is called exactly, but whatever that view is, and universalism, you know, it's just the problem of evil, basically. Like, I, you know, having an eternal afterlife of a generally positive character for, for all conscious beings, that certainly helps with the problem of evil. You know, it makes some of the suffering in our world seem uh, less significant because this isn't just the end of the story for the hundreds of millions of years of animal predation, you know, all these animals that suffered and died in horrific ways for seemingly no reason, um, in ways that totally could have been avoided and contributed to nothing at all. <laughs> like, um, you know, so it doesn't seem as significant, but it's still just like wildly flies in the face of what you'd expect if a perfect being was ultimately responsible for the natural order. You know, the natural order is kind of horrific, you know, like it's, it makes more sense to me to say like, oh, you know, that apparently morally random natural order it is kind of morally random Mm. as opposed to saying there's like this moral rationale behind the suffering that we see in the world. So 
you know, like, I guess that's what it comes down to for me is, is this works against like all versions of perfect being monotheism is like just the idea that there's not really a good rationale behind the kind degree and distribution of suffering in the world. You know, in other words, there's not really a successful theodicy. And that really just prevents me from finding this plausible, you know, this, this theistic worldview. It's just too good to be true. Like it, it, it if our world was different, then I, I could, pro- I could be a theist, you know, like if, we lived in the world that young earth creationists describe um, where the earth is 6,000 years old and there hasn't really been that much animal suffering. And it's all because of the literal fall, you know, like that's, there was this literal event called the fall and then we ushered it. Like that's not a terrible theodicy. I mean, it, it just relies on all these um, to put it mildly implausible scientific and historical views. But um, once you bring in universalism and if there hasn't been that much animal suffering you know because the whole universe is only six thousand years old you know what i'm saying is if the world was different then i would be a theist but in the world that we live in it's just very hard for me to make sense of the idea of like a perfect being being responsible for for the world that i see Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense to me um i mean I'm not like totally against eternal conscious torment, though I do find it super hard to see. Um, a lot of the pictures of it are like, I'm like, that makes no sense to me. The only picture I could like maybe see is like if you read like The Great Divorce and C.S. Lewis, like something like that, maybe you could strike a tone. Um, eternal conscious is, um, inconvenience or something. It's like yeah. eternal conscious mild irritation. <laughs> it's not really. Torment. Well, I mean, the way Lewis describes it i'm sure you, are you familiar with lewis's description of like i've, I've just heard it secondhand from a yeah. couple of people who've told me about it yeah so it's like you know like hell's a world where you can kind of just get wherever you want and like hell's locked from, from the inside um so it's not like god's like ha- like created like this big torture chamber or anything like that um i mean there's some plausibility but then you wonder like if there's a perfect being like why would he create that world like where you could have a world where like evil is actually like defeated um and it seems to me like yeah. if evil is going to be defeated like you need at least like annihilationism and like obviously i'm a hopeful universalist like i don't want anyone to go to hell like can't imagine doing that Um, why do you why do you hope for it because it seems like the best possible scenario where everyone becomes everyone and everything Mm -hmm. is reconciled to god like what sounds better than that like to me like that seems like and i have issues you know there's like biblical data and things like that but to me like just like thinking about it like just off the cuff like to me that's the most hopeful scenario is to hope everyone is reconciled to god so i mean it seems like if you're if you're a hopeful universalist, then you're conceding that it's the best possible outcome. And, Mm -hmm. but then you're worried that this perfect being is not going to bring about the best possible outcome. You're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, he's a perfect being, but we all know what he's like, you know, it's like, no, if it's (laughs) that bad side on like once a week. So, you know, he's getting out. I mean, if it's the best possible outcome, then it seems like it's, you should be more confident that God would bring it about i mean like why would he bring about something less than what he could bring about i mean it seems like it's within his power to save everyone like Mm -hmm. that that whole idea of like hell being locked from the inside like that just makes no sense to me because if it's really terrible then you would want to (laughs) leave and like if the idea is well look they just won't submit to god or they just they won't submit to the good or something like that well if god is a perfect being then all it really takes is him revealing himself to like people maybe in different ways or like to different extents. But if God is the way that he's described, then he's totally irresistible. So all it really takes is God revealing himself to these people and they would happily, willingly enter into a relationship with him. So it's within his power to save everyone. And we know that he wills that all shall be saved and it's the best outcome. So it just seems like, 
well, of course, this is what would happen. Like, I mean, first of all, if, if hell is locked from the inside and it's kind of torturous, then it's insane to allow to will yourself to be tortured. You know, you're not really rationally willing your best interests at that point, and it's wrong to let um, insane people have themselves tortured, you know, which you'd have to be to lock the door from the inside in hell. And even mm -hmm. if it's like, it's not so torturous, but it's still, you know, it's just not great or, or whatever Lewis was talking about. It's like, well, look, it's within God's power to save everyone just by revealing himself because he's this totally irresistible being. He's perfect love and goodness itself. Like all it takes is having a, a more accurate understanding of God. And you wouldn't see it like how Christopher Hitchens sees God like as big brother or something. Like mm -hmm. the more accurate your understanding of God becomes, if God is literally like a perfect being of, of love, then the more you came to understand God, the more you would really want to be in his presence and like in a relationship with God. So it seems like it's within God's power to save everyone and he wants everyone to be saved. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely something there. And like, I wouldn't like, if you, someone asked me like where I'd stand on like eschatology and stuff right now, it'd probably be like some form of like annihilationism and hopeful universalist or something like that. Um, but I mean, I do think like, it's like with just defending eternal conscious torment, which is super hard to do. <laughs> like, I'm not like, Oh, this is an easy view to defend by any means. Like it's definitely really tricky. And I think, um, yeah, it's, Biblically, too, I think there's issues with it, a lot of issues with it. But, I mean, you could say something like um, the story of, like, say someone who's, like, a drug addict in this life. Um, surely they know that, like, not being a drug addict is, like, a better thing than, like, staying in the current state they are. But just by, by the way their nature is, like, they can't escape that. And, I mean, you could appeal and say, look, God's a perfect being. He's unlimited. It's, so, like, you know, it's not a totally analogous scenario, which I think there's something right about that. But for me, I just, I don't know. I, th I still think there's something where you could have some form of eternal conscious torment. Um, and not, and like have it, like have a defense for it, but I don't know if it's how good it would be is my question. So that's why I'm not, that's why I don't hold the ECT. So, yeah. 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 It's just hard for me to make it work. I, I don't understand how, um, it just seems kind of bizarre, honestly. Like, mm -hmm. but yeah, it had a lot to do with me deconverting initially. It's just thinking about the story of Christianity. Like if you just ask your average Christian, like, Hey, uh, what's going on? <laughs> like with uh, mm -hmm. life on earth and stuff, like the story for me is just like really hard to believe. And there have been some people who have done a decent job of explaining why the story strikes so many atheists as, as hard to accept, you know, like mm -hmm. um, people like Dan Barker, he has this one thing called like the good news, this like short story. And then there's uh, Scott Clifton um, mm -hmm. who has the thing, has this thing called God's checklist 2.0. Um, I don't think he would stand by some of these things because <laughs> they were made a long time ago, but um, I really like that video. I loved, you know, when I was first deconverting, but uh, yeah, I think that it's possible to answer these questions. You just have to kind of take these fringe positions, you know, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of Christians will, will not be very happy if you, if you do this and they're going to say that you're not a real Christian and they're going to, you know, I mean, obviously there is a scriptural basis for universalism, you know, like David Bentley Hart and like Keith DeRose, they, you know, it's not like they're just ignoring the Bible, <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. they, they know their stuff, but, um, um, well, it's been good. Anything else? I mean, we kind of covered everything. Um, I know you're a theist now, so mm -hmm. just admit it right now and I can get, like, I can clickbait this and just get all kinds of like cool stuff going on. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm ready. Anytime. Yeah, I'm like I said, I'm I'm trying to take Christianity and theism like I'm trying to like steel man it. Like this is kind of like my uh this is the last hurrah here where I'm just like, okay, I really have to I found this version of Christianity that actually might be true, you know, like it actually seems like it's way more plausible than the other versions, which I, I'm literally incapable of believing. But like mm -hmm. um 
So, and I've only started thinking about this recently, like in the last like several months or so. So I'm trying to be open to it. So, you know, I feel like I'm not really approaching this in good faith of ahead of time. I already know what the outcome is going to be, but I haven't really thought about universalism up until the last, you know, several months or so. And I've been reading about it and just trying to, you know, remain open and not be a non-resist or not be a resistant non-believer, you know, like mm -hmm. I want to look into this like universalist form of Christianity with an open mind and be like, Hey, you know, I dismissed this when I was deconverting because I didn't take it seriously because no one I knew took it seriously. Like even annihilationism was way too like liberal, you know, when mm -hmm. I was like a Christian, like that wasn't taken seriously at all. And it, let alone this like universalist crap. And then like, you know, so, but you know, I, I just gradually became exposed to Christians who took it seriously. They're sincere Bible believing Christians, you know, and they, uh, mm -hmm. they're universalists. And I, and I have to admit it does sidestep a lot of my objections. Like I just had a debate with uh, John Buck where I um, defend atheism and, you know, like, look, universalism in the, in the kind of Lewis stump view that I was talking about, like it, it does kind of seriously diminish my case and leave me with almost mm -hmm. nothing but the problem of evil. And that's, yeah. that's basically it. So I'm trying to approach this universalist Christianity, you know, this kind of like my current investigation, approaching it with an open mind with the possibility that I might convert, because if that's not a possibility, then why bother doing it if you're mm -hmm. not truly open? So, no, I, I am looking into Christianity, into universalist forms of Christianity, and I'm there's a real possibility that I could become a Christian at the other side of this. Um, but if this doesn't work out, I think I'm pretty much done with thinking about <laughs> Christianity seriously. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then like I said, on the other path, um, psychophysical harmony has kind of forced me into taking these kind of Nagel-type views more seriously about natural teleology, where there is this kind of tendency towards states of value, um, mm -hmm. but not too strong because the natural world is pretty morally random. So um, that's mm -hmm. kind of where I'm at in my uh, journey at this particular moment. But you know, I'm just uh, I'm really glad you had me on and stuff. Um, you're one of the uh, Christian YouTubers out there that I have like genuinely positive feelings towards and stuff. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, um, yeah. So I, I enjoy uh, talking to you or in today's case, talking at you uh, for 90% <laughs> of the time. But um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, thanks for having me on and um, we'll see where this goes. But yeah, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you. Cause you're very, it seems like through the courses, you're very open. You, it's not like you're really trying to sell anything to anyone. You're just like, kind of like, here's where I'm at. Cause I know, Probably maybe like some of your listeners, like I listen to your, I have such a weird, how I listen to YouTube videos and stuff, but I listened to like a couple weeks ago, your like episode on like free will and determinism from like four years ago or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, that is not the Emerson Green I listened to that from like now or the one I'm talking to right now. And it, it shows like, and I think it's good that stuff's there because it shows like for you and I hope for people listening to me, you can see a similar thing. Um, like this is a journey. It's not like we have it all figured out and we spend the next a hundred years um well if we live to 100 that's rough um but like it is like we don't have it all figured out like we're very open and like saying like hey this is our journeys and like for me you talked about like how you growing up in church like annihilation annihilationism and universalism were seen as like not even options mm -hmm. and for me like it wasn't pushed on me but like my natural like assumptions growing up in like an evangelical world was like yeah those things are crazy you can't believe that um and like over time like i've seen them as more and more plausible like universalism like philosophically to me it makes a lot of sense um Theologically is where I have all my issues. And I know like D David Bentley Hart has response and you know, there's responses, but for me, that's when I have issues, but all to say like life's a journey and we're going to get it figured out. And like, you're okay sometimes. So yeah. Oh, thank I'm you. Your channel is great. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is a journey and like, you know, I have 
two, maybe even three beliefs that I currently hold that are not true, and I look forward to figuring out what they are. But well, I only have one, so you got to get it. <laughs> you got to get your stuff together, man. Come on. <laughs> but yeah, it's been great, Emerson. Thanks for coming on. And the channel will just be literally added in this YouTube title, assuming YouTube wants to function when I upload this video. And yeah, that's it. So. It's been great, man. Thanks for coming on, and we'll talk after the broadcast ends. For everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this, and God bless.